Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 379 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host, and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. I usually co-host this podcast every week with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, the author of The Firestar, A Maven and Reeve Mystery. Alison's having a summer break and will be back with us soon. But you can still expect all your favourite segments like Word of the Week, our writer in residence and writing tips and advice. I'm going to dive straight into the show. So starting with our writing tip. Now, this is about writing a gripping romantic thriller. My writing tip this week is based on a really interesting post on the Australian Writers' Centre website, which, of course, you can find at writerscentre.com.au slash blog. And it is, of course, about how to write a gripping romantic thriller. Now, this is fascinating because romantic thriller, or also known as romantic suspense, isn't as well known in Australia as it is overseas. Some authors who write in romantic suspense are Nora Roberts and Linda Howard, and in Australia, we have Bronwyn Parry, who has published romantic suspense books like As Darkness Falls, Dark Country, and Dead Heat. And she is also a presenter here, one of our tutors, wonderful tutors here at the Australian Writers' Centre. In the blog post, eight musts for writing a gripping romantic thriller, and some of these can apply to other genres, of course, too, but particularly romantic thrillers, Bronwyn explains that writing in this genre can be a little tricky because you need to satisfy both the romance readers and the crime and thriller readers. I mean, it seems obvious, but if you're writing romantic suspense, you have to make sure that you weave together the romance and the crime. They need to be linked in a very clear way. Otherwise, you're just tacking crime onto a romance or shoving romance into a crime story. Another great tip that Bronwyn says is to make your protagonists have agency. Now, what's that mean? It means that they have to actually be able to take part in the story and actively move it forward. Now, this is something I see a lot from new writers, writing in any genre really, that their protagonist is passive. They're kind of just hanging around waiting for the action to happen and describing the action happening instead of going out and making the action happen. I mean, even if your character is naturally shy or withdrawn or reticent or whatever, they still need to get out there and work for the story. If they don't do anything, if stuff just happens to them, it's actually not very satisfying for the reader. So always make sure your protagonists have agency. So it is a really interesting genre. And if you'd like to read all of Bronwyn's tips, head on over to the blog. Now, listeners, <laughs> are you ready for the word of the week? You just have to imagine Alison laughing at me at this point and kind of grudgingly saying, oh, go on, tell me. Anyway, so the word of the week is prestidigitation. Prestidigitation. <laughs> so hard to say. Prestidigitation. It sounds like it could be related to prestige or maybe predestination, um, which incidentally is the Ethan Hawke movie that's filmed in the grounds of the Australian Writers' Centre in Melbourne at the Abbotsford Convent, but I digress. Actually, according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it means sleight of hand. Like when a magician does a magic trick, they're, perf they're performing prestidigitation. 
but you could also use it in a non-magical way anytime someone does something to distract from their real objective. So, for example, uh, you might say, the minister's new bill is a bit of prestidigitation to deflect away from the crisis within the party. Okay, and that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're serious about completing your own novel manuscript, immerse yourself in our inspiring and motivational six-month program, Write Your Novel. Filled with weekly workshopping and practical lessons, you'll receive advice on structure, dialogue and much more, as well as tips on publishing. The online program fits around your weekly schedule and you'll get extensive personal feedback from your classmates and tutor throughout the program. Margaret Morgan's novel, The Second Cure, is out now through Penguin Books Australia, and it's also being turned into a mini-series. Here's what Margaret says. Hi, my name is Margaret Morgan. I'm an author. Um, I've just had my first novel published and I'm working on my second. I've been a writer all my life, um, either professionally or just for fun, and squeezed into other professions, but um, it's definitely where I'm staying now. I decided to do the course at uh, the Australian Writers' Centre, um, Write Your Novel, the six-month course, when a friend told me about it and I realised it was exactly what I needed at that point to help me get the novel written and to give me the kind of support I needed. I was prompted to take the course specifically because I wanted the kind of encouragement and support that a six-month ongoing course would allow me. The tutor in the course was really fantastic, somebody who's written many, many novels herself and um, is very encouraging and really is good at identifying the strengths and weaknesses in writing. One of the impacts that the course has had on me has been to demonstrate to me that I actually can be a writer, can be a novelist specifically. It has allowed me to make connections that otherwise I wouldn't have been able to make within the industry. And probably one of the best things about it is the writing group that was formed with a bunch of us in that particular course. And that was like, what, three or four years ago. We're still meeting every month and critiquing each other's work. And it's a really valuable thing. Through the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I discovered that I really could be a novelist. And that was such a revelation to me and such a delight. It was something I'd always wanted and suddenly now I've got it. I would say you really should join the Australian Writers' Centre because it's staffed by real professionals. It's a really good, well-structured organisation that's got great courses that are practical as well as inspiring. Anyone who's thinking of doing one should really think about it very seriously because it's a very, very valuable organisation and the courses are terrific. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash novel writing. All right, now for our giveaway. We're doing something quite different this week to our usual books, but I thought it was probably appropriate for January in case you're in this kind of mindset. So we have three copies of the book, 30 Day Kickstart Plan by Joe Wicks. If you're craving motivation to start your new year off on the right foot, you'll love this practical guide. Joe Wicks, aka The Body Coach, has helped millions of people to keep fit and cook healthy, simple recipes. So it contains 100 recipes and 10 HIT workouts, high-intensity workouts, to help you get into shape. So combined with weekly plans that help you prep, uh, this is meant to be a personalized approach 
suited to your own day-to-day habits to help you have a healthier lifestyle. So Joe has sold more than 3 million books in the UK alone and um, the 30-day kickstart plan is meant to help you create new habits, keep on track and feel brilliant inside and out. Now, if you feel so inclined to start your year off this way, to kickstart your year, then um, enter the competition, enter the giveaway. It's at writercenter.com.au slash win and entries close on the 25th of January. That's writercenter.com.au slash win. So now let's move to our writer in residence this week. It's author and journalist Will Kostakis. I really enjoyed talking to Will. He is the author of several popular young adult novels, including The Monuments and its sequel, Rebel Gods, um, The Sidekicks and Loathing Lola. His novel, The First Third, won the Gold Inky Award and was also shortlisted for the Children's Book Council of Australia Book of the Year and Australian Prime Minister's Literary Awards, among others. So anyway, let's have a listen to Will. Thank you so much for joining us today, Will. Well, thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on your latest book, Rebel Gods. Thanks so much. (laughs) It's it's. It's a cracker. Um, for those readers who haven't got their hands on a book yet, can you tell us mm-hmm. what it's about? So it is the second half of the Monuments duology, which I always envisioned as two books, you know, get in, entice readers, and then leave quickly before they hate me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, the first book was a reaction to the book that I wrote previously, because I find that each of my books are a reaction to the book that came before it. So The Sidekicks was this slow meditative um, story about grief that was rooted in the real. And so I wanted to write the exact opposite of that with my following book. So Monuments was this sort of laugh-a-minute, page-turning, action-adventure fantasy story. I always say it's Legend of Zelda set in Sydney now where you have three (laughs) teenagers who skip school to find the ancient gods that are buried under different Sydney high schools. Mm. And Rebel Gods is that often unseen aftermath of an adventure. What happens when the heroes that went on their three-day quest have to contend with everything that they've done and everything that has been laid at their feet for them to do. And so it is a slower novel and it really does delve into who these characters are, what makes them heroic, and it's ultimately a story about growing up and the changing relationships with family with lots Mm. of fantasy and gods thrown in for good measure. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what age group do you think this is for? Now, bear in mind, listeners, you can read this at any age. You can read this as an adult. It's it's totally compelling. But what age group did you write it for, do you think? So I always aim for that sweet spot around year eight, year nine is sort of like if I'm imagining a Will Kostakis reader, but there's always Mm. a joke in there for older people. And, Mm. but the thing with Monuments and Rebel Gods, it was my first time thinking, you know what, I don't want there to be a flaw on this age group. If somebody wants to read up in year five and year six, 
Mm. it's safe enough for them to sort of enter the space and they're not going to be wildly corrupted or encounter a word that they probably shouldn't repeat at school. (laughs) Um, So I was very careful to strip out sort of swearing and a lot of Mm. like overt sexual references that seem to come naturally to me for some reason. (laughs) It's probably because I read way too much Terry Pratchett growing up. (laughs) Um, But the really wonderful thing about this series is getting that feedback from year six readers who like when they love something like teenagers are great, but when kids in year six love something, they love it with every fiber of their being and Mm. seeing them, you know, be so passionate about this story and ask me the most ridiculous questions about the world just shows you how much they live inside books when they read them. And Mm. so one of the pleasures of writing this series has been opening me up to those younger readers. But ultimately, I always say my books are for young adults primarily, but they're also there for people who enjoy reading books about young adults. Yes. Now, that's an interesting point because when you were reading this as an adult and certainly as an adult who we're, it was a long time ago when I was that age, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's an insight into the world of young people today. What do you do to stay in that world and make sure it's authentic to these people? Um, I read a lot. Uh, Obviously, I read a lot of YA, but more than that, I make sure I connect with teenagers as much as I can. So, you know, in years that are not completely derailed by a pandemic, Mm -hmm. I will spend at least, you know, 20 or 30 weeks of the year on the road touring different schools, regional and city areas, and talking to teenagers, looking Mm. at what they're reading, reading what they're reading, talking to them, not telling them what to read, but rather listening to them when they tell you what they like. And sort of, you can always tell the difference between people who are trying to talk down to teenagers and people who are trying to talk with teenagers, if that makes Mm. sense. Mm. And I... I'm always asked how long I'm going to be writing for teenagers and I was sort of thrust into writing for teenagers because I started writing as a teenager and I got my book deal at 17 and so it made sense. But now I'm in my early 30s. Why am I still writing for teenagers? It's because I can still access that part of myself and also I'm still interested in telling stories about them. If I start writing young adult novels where the focus is on the adults, well, then (laughs) I've been there too long. Um, But I'm really enjoying writing in the space and I'm finding it's really fertile ground to tell stories. Now, you say that you always envisaged this as a duology. Firstly, Mm -hmm. why? (laughs) And um, do you recommend that people... um, read the first book first or do you feel that this is this also works as standalone I tried to make it as much of a standalone as possible and you know I, all the information you need to understand the book is in the book mm. but I think sort of the fun of it is really launching in with monuments and meeting these characters in really ridiculous ways and so that they feel lived in it's and you mightn't even notice what the setups are before you get to the payoffs of Rebel Gods, which really is a conversation with the first book. And it is looking at all those things that I set up, uh, a lot of the things I didn't mean to set up, but then upon rereading and rereading, I discovered, hey, that's fertile ground. Um, And I think reading them together uh, really makes for the best experience. Why did I choose Mm. to write a duology? 
And look, it could have been one big book. Like it was always one huge story, like the two different kinds of gods I wanted to explore. Because whenever I talk to people, uh, religious people especially, they have there are two competing ideas of who you know the Christian God is. There is the God who created the world but is very hands-off. But then you have other Christians who believe in a God that if you pray to him, he will do everything you want sort of thing, if that mm. makes sense. So there is, mm. there's a hands-on God and a hands-off God. And I'm like, what if we had a novel series that explored both different types of gods but through a fictional sort of creation myth? And so Monuments, the first book, I always envisaged as we're dealing with creator gods who are trying to step back and let people sort of live their lives. And with the second book, I wanted to look at what about these gods who are more mischievous and who are more involved in the day-to-day aspects of, you know, living? And is there a place for gods like that in our world now? And I wanted to look at fame and how we build people up and how we build media personalities and these these new religions that are rising in the world that aren't, you know, big R religion that we're sort of used to. And so to me, the story was always in two halves. There was one, one time I was sort of considering making it a trilogy, but I'm way too afraid to, you know, write a series, release the first book and then have to be afraid of crossing the road for the next five years while I write the next two. Like I am too afraid of getting hit by a bust. I have to make sure that any story that I put out there is finished and monuments, it doesn't really have an ending. Like it does, you know, you have your heroes standing on the edge of the rest of their adventure, sort of looking out going, what the hell have we done? Uh, I'm much more comfortable with ending things like Rebel Gods does, which, you know, while it's still open, it's just very much a, this is the end of this story and it all sort of ties together in a beautiful way. The pressure of like George R.R. Martin and like people harassing him Mm. to finish a book, uh, that's definitely not for me. So I thought in and out, duology was the way to go. In that case, did you write them back to back to keep the momentum going or was there a break? (laughs) Look, I the way that I pitched it to my publisher uh, when I was talking about it was I wanted to have a break. I wanted to do what Christopher Nolan did with the Batman trilogy where you make a Batman film but then go off and write something else and then come back and feel energised to tell stories in that space again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my publisher was like, nope, just write them back to back. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, sure, right. You're, you're giving me money. I'll do what you say. Um And so I was, Monuments came out in August. I toured it until October and then I locked myself in the house and wrote from October through to June. And then that was it. It was off to the printers. So usually I take about two years to write a book and I had mere months to write this. So that was absolute hell. Do not recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess everything was already set up. So I just had to, I had... I had this sand pit that I could play in and I had my rules and it was just a matter of telling the most compelling story I could in the time frame. So you had already the second book plotted out in your head or what level of like how much did you know of the second it, book? I had plotted out okay, I had plotted out the story itself and I knew how they were going to come up against these antagonists. But 
the shape of the story was constantly changing. And I wanted to be a real smart ass with the second book and be like, oh, I'm going to build up these bad guys. And then I'm going to open the second book and it's going to be like, oh, they actually don't matter. This is just a story about people. <laughs> and I wrote that, or at least I wrote a bit of it. My publisher was like, oh, Will, what are you doing? This like this is a complete betrayal of what you set up in the first book. Because as we edited the first book, we ramped up that tension and we ramped up that, ramped up that looming threat of the villain. And then mm. to enter book two and be like, oh, actually, all that stuff doesn't matter, mm. that was going to be a betrayal. And this was my first time writing a sequel. I had to realize I wasn't just writing a standalone book for myself that people would come to without, you know, mm. uh, preconceived notions of what it's going to be. I had a book that literally told them and that they paid for that said, this is what the next book is going to be. And it was making a promise to my audience. And so I had to tell the story that I wanted to, which was more character focused. But at the same time, I still had to fulfill that promise that I made in the first book. Mm. So just take me back to when you were at school, because mm -hmm. um, you won the Sydney Morning Herald Young Writer of the Year. And, you know, you got a book deal really early. What were you like at school? Were you immersed in books and writing? And did you know from back then that you wanted to write? Or was it just something that, you know, you enjoyed and, and, and were good at? I was exactly as annoying and persistent as that question makes me sound. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I was sending I was sending books off from when I was in year seven. Wow. And I was, I was convinced I'm going to get published on the quality of my work, so I'm not going to write my age on this. <gasps> I'm kicking myself now because <gasps> if I sent it off going, hi, I'm 11, I've written a 60,000-word novel. There you go. Like... <laughs> I now realize that being an author, there are two halves to it. There is the work that you produce, but mm -hmm. there's the how can we market you to booksellers yeah. and book buyers? Like that would have been a boom. But at the same time, you know, very few authors who are published in their teens go on to have long, steady careers. Like mm -hmm. it's you either get that big first book and the burnout. Um, and so I was quite happy that. I waited. I know it's funny to say I waited until I was 17. <laughs> but, you know, I got numerous rejection letters, and I mean numerous. <laughs> um, book deal at 17. Book came out at 19. I was still 19 when my publisher was like, Will, probably never write again, or maybe wait until you find your voice. Um, and so that was really sad. Nothing beats mm. achieving your dream as a teenager and then failing miserably at it. <laughs> um, so I worked as a journalist for a bit and I had writer's block for the first time in my life. And it's why I'm quite vocal when I see publishers signing, you know, children up. Like mm. this is an industry that can be quite cruel and that there are very few safety nets for authors. Um, we're all like sole traders who are hired on a book basis. And if the tide turns against you, you know, they mm. cut you loose. Um, yeah. And that's tough as an adult to really come to terms with and not take personally. Like you talk to your editor every single day for a year. And then the day the book comes out, they don't talk to you again until you <laughs> sign another book deal. Like it's a very strange thing. And for a 19 year old me, that was absolutely devastating. And so I had writer's block for the first time and I really doubted myself. And that was the best thing that could have happened to me. Like it was cruel, absolutely cruel. But because of that, I took stock. 
I stepped back. Not only did I learn how to like public speak and engage with teenagers and, you know, I wasn't going to be made a bestseller by my publisher. If I was going to sell books, I was going to sell them myself. Mm. And so I learned to tour and do all that sort of stuff. And that's how I became a touring author. But then I also learned, okay, my first book didn't connect with readers. What do I have to do? And I keep coming back to the conversation I had with a publisher when I was 17. I was sitting in the office and they put out some books and they go, how about you read some of these books and then come back to us with what kind of author you want to be? Mm -hmm. And I thought it was pretty clear that I knew what kind of author I wanted to be. And I keep revisiting this moment where I'm like, oh, they just wanted to mold me into somebody else. But anyway, I came back having read all these books and I read one of the books was Marcus Suzak's The Messenger. And I thought, you know what? You know, I was a huge English student at school. I loved writing things that could be unpacked and pulled apart. I think I could maybe write like this. And the editor looked at me and she smiled and she was like, oh, I think that's a bit beyond you. (laughs) And... You know, I was completely devastated by that. But then you know what? I wrote the book. I had that process. And then, you know, within five years, I'd signed to a different publisher and I'd Mm. written a book that was shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Award. So Mm. maybe, you know, it wasn't, it was, maybe it was beyond me as a 17 year old, or maybe they just didn't see or believe in me as much as I did. Or maybe (sighs) that whole experience was the reason why I turned into the author I am. I don't know. Mm. When you ha- were going through that self-doubt, mm-hmm. what, how, how deep was it? Like did you really question is this uh, going to be for me or, and how did you get over it? Um, look, it was, I was completely convinced that, I wasn't going to be an author because look, <gasps> I had the, I had the idealized version of what an author is in my head. I didn't realize that if your book doesn't sell within, you know, two months, you know, sale and return, it's mm. just sent back to the publisher and you're not in bookstores anymore. Mm. And it's like, so this book didn't sell. How do I sell it if it's not in bookstores? Yeah. And there was so much that I was learning and I was like, this is ridiculous. And I was working as a journalist. I was making quite good money as a journalist and I was writing and I was interviewing. I was telling stories, which I really, really enjoyed, but there was still that pull. And, you know, I, as a, as a 10 year old, I would look at the back cover of a Morris Gleitzman book, you know, imagine my image over his and think Mm. that's going to be me. That's going to be me. That's going to be me. And you know, that, that persistence came back. But for, for two or three years, I all I did was write in circles and doubt myself and just hate everything that I'd written. So, but what happens after that when you're hating everything that you're writing? Uh-huh. Did, did, was there a turning point or did you just, did it just ebb away? At all? I don't know whether it was, I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg, but I was touring schools and I started talking to kids about my grandmother. And they started to share stories about their grandparents. And I, you know, while I was touring, I was telling stories and kids were telling stories to me. And I realized, wait, there is something here. And so I started writing a book that I knew would be about a grandson and his grandmother. Mm. And that came easily to me because I'm always talking about my grandmother. She's such a huge part of my life. And, you know, when I talk about her, her presence fills the room. Mm. 
Mm. And I'm like, there is something special here. I'm not going to write a book where I'm going to try to sound smart. I'm not going to write a book where I'm going to try to make somebody, you know, wet themselves laughing. I'm just going to write a book that captures this love that I have for my grandmother Mm. and try to instill it with everything that she has taught me. And instead of looking for big words and smart phrasing, I'm going to go for big heart. And once I did that, I showed it to a publisher and she read 10,000 words and she was like, great, it's not ready yet. Keep writing. And then I wrote 20,000 words. And she's like, yep, keep going. I'm not going to pay. I'm not going to pay you for it yet. Keep going. And then I wrote half of it and she read it. She's like, it's wonderful. Keep going. And then I put my foot down. I'm like, no, you're going to pay me. And so they signed (laughs) me, Uh, (laughs) um, which was, and they, they saw there was something special in that Mm. manuscript. And look, it's, I know we like to talk nowadays about, oh, you know, positive reinforcement is doing damage to kids, but no. If you treat someone with kindness and with love and you encourage their interests, they will perform really, really, really well. And I had a publisher who believed in me who didn't sit there and say, no, I don't think, I think this is beyond you. All she said was, no, keep going, keep going, keep going. Mm. And Mm. that made all the difference to me. Mm. Now, just coming back to monuments and Mm -hmm. rebel gods, there's you 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 have a real skill in making things so relatable, um, so familiar. You kind of go, oh, I think that that's building. Oh, I think that's Newington, even though it's not. And um, <laughs> and <laughs> even though, um, but you also then have gods and fantasy and you know yeah. these otherworldly things. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you have to do to make the otherworldly things um, connect? So I was always inspired by, I love when you see, I'm, I'm not particularly interested in going off to magical worlds. That's the kind of fantasy mm. that is, that doesn't set my world on fire, which is funny because I actually really enjoyed writing those aspects of Rebel Gods. But with Monuments, what I wanted to tap into was I loved, say, the first Matrix film where you got to see people with these supernatural abilities in Sydney. I mm. loved... I loved, you know, the Harry Potter novels when you saw real world London and the magic in that real world. I, mm-hmm. I love seeing the magic in the real. Yeah. And so for me, it was all about one, firstly, capturing the mundane, capturing the real world. And then when it came to creating the gods, I was like, right, if I had to create gods, what would they be like? You know, I mm-hmm. am a writer. I look at everything and see the beauty of art. And so I thought, okay, what if we had gods who created the world like you would create a sculpture, but it was a, it was a whole team building it. And that was how I created my team of creator gods. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it became, they created humans so that there would be someone to admire the artwork. And so that was really what informed the creation of all these gods. And so, and then from that, I made sure, do I have you know, distinct ages amongst these gods? Do I have Mm. distinct personalities? And so that first book was really 
the way it was built was it was structured like a video game where it's one of my favorite sort of fantasy game tropes is you have a party of a set number of characters, but you have sort of a guest in your party for a couple of missions and then they go away and someone else comes in. And so I envisaged this rotating cast where I had my three main characters, but then I had these ca- this cast of gods, you know, coming in, coming out. And before the cast got too bloated, I just killed a couple of them and kept the story going. <laughs> So when you were in your writing period, you know, like, for example, your October to June thing or whatever, yeah. um, what when you're actually writing, what is your routine to get the words onto the keyboard or, you know, the screen? It's, do, you have, do you aim for a word count? Do you aim for a number of hours? Do you have some other method? And do you actually have a routine during the day, if you can describe it? I don't usually have a routine, but, oh. and I'm going to say this, that writing Rebel Gods was absolutely joyless, not because I didn't have fun, but because of the time constraints and the mm. pandemic. Like there was a lot of the things that I would usually do to give myself sort of time away from a story I couldn't do anymore. Um, and I didn't have time to say, oh, this part of the story isn't working. I can pause, take a month and come back to it. Yeah. It was very much, if this isn't working, you know, cut it loose like my first publisher, cutting me loose. <laughs> um, no, I'm not bitter. <laughs> but, um, I bet they regret it now. <laughs> no, no, but I say all that, but I, I love them dearly. And we've sort of, yes. we've met now as adults, because I can imagine I was also an insufferable 17-year-old. Like, can you imagine just like the smugness that I would have emanated? Um, I needed I needed a lesson. Um yeah. And so I was just working with uh, word counts because the book had to be a similar length to Monuments and I had to hit certain emotional beats at certain moments or else the flow would be completely off because the first book is built around a huge moment every 10,000 words. This Mm. book doesn't have those big moments because I actually wanted to find the character emotions and things like that. So it was a matter of sitting down and saying, okay, I have to write 700 words today and plot out what I'm writing tomorrow. It was very much mm. laying down the tracks in front of a speeding train and oh. hoping that by the time I got to the next station, I had a complete book b- behind me and not just an entire mess. So you write and then you actually think about this is what I'm going to write the next day. Is that what happens? Yeah. So I've got, I've got my main plot and mm-hmm. that – I plotted the rebel gods quite, quite strictly. But then, um, as you're writing it, you discover something else. So I was writing it. My original plan was for monuments to be the book about the mum character, and then uh, rebel gods was going to explore Connor's relationship with his dad. And then I realised, wait, you know, I'm writing this book under deadline. I can't exactly you know, research what it's like to have a dad Mm. (laughs) because I can't exactly tap into lived experience there. Mm. (laughs) And so I was like, right, that is way too difficult. I chopped that out of the story completely. And I thought, right, I have this mum character. What are my opportunities here? And so I ended up discovering all of these threads, you know, just by pulling at that point because I had rebel gods and I had my characters established You have Connor, he's the hero. You have Sally, who is his sort of sister figure. And you have Lockie, who is the love interest. And that's how we make that trio. And so when you've got, when I'm exploring Connor and his mum's relationship, 
by focusing on that, I realized, wait, by bringing the sister figure in, she's dealing with the death of her parents and Connor's mum has just suffered the loss of her father. And I realized there were connections there, but those were all connections that I found as I was writing and I was letting the characters breathe because Monuments takes place over three days. I did not give the characters time to pause mm. and breathe. And so Rebel Gods was about that breathing room and it's often in that breathing room I find a story that I didn't realise was there. Mm. Tell me about, you talk about being a touring author and you do school visits. So pandemic aside, um, when it's a regular year, um, how how many school visits would you be doing in a year? And, well, A, do you enjoy them? And B, how important or necessary necessary is probably the better word, um, is it for a career as an author? I would say I'm always very mindful of this because there are some authors, usually male, who always take the number of schools they visit and multiply by three. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then if you say you visit lots of schools, then you get more school visits and it's it's a really weird thing. I would say I visit about 150 schools every year and that could be, you know, I could have a day where I visit three schools in one day or I could have a week where I stay at one school. And it really just depends. I think it's vital for my kind of writing where Mm -hmm. I am not one of the wholly chosen ones who get to write and get paid to write. Like for me, it is is vital if I'm going to keep the lights on, I need to get out there and I need to speak. Mm. and I need to, and that pays the bills. But on top of that, and I learned that very early on in my career, it actually gave me a chance to talk to librarians and talk to teenagers. And Mm. if I could teach them creative writing or tell them stories about me, that got them interested in reading my books, especially if those books were no longer on bookstore shelves because it was longer than three months since release. And so it gave me longevity and I live by it, but I understand that it's not for everyone. Mm. Like there are some authors who absolutely hate children and they shouldn't (laughs) be around children, but they can write for children really, really, really well. So just, just please do that and stay away. (laughs) 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 Um, But yeah, I think it's, it's, it's vital for me and it's also helped me understand teenagers. So whenever I'm writing something and I'm at risk of disappearing up my own ass, I remember like the teenagers that I've spoken to and what their interests are. Like when I was at school, we didn't have smartphones Mm. and teenagers now have smartphones. And you can imagine what it's like to be a teenager and and have smartphones. But when you actually watch teenagers and talk to them and actually show an interest in their lives and they share sort of anecdotes and their experiences, you realize you cannot imagine what they are living through because it is so different to what we grew up with. And, you know, I graduated in 2006 Mm -hmm. and, you know, in those 14 years, it feels like there have been seven or eight generations. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think it's to keep my writing, sorry, to keep my writing authentic, I really think that visiting schools is the right thing for me. And I think that's why my writing still feels like it's for teenagers and Mm. not more for the adults. Mm. So what is next for you? What are you writing now? Uh, Well, I've just finished 
one of my final read throughs of a novella that releases next month because apparently I haven't been productive enough in this pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, it seemed like a good idea before the world sort of descended into a hellscape. Um, it's called The Greatest Hit and it is, oh. it's me getting my COVID story out there and I started writing it in April when everything started sort of locking down mm. and it's about two teenagers who fall in love but I didn't just want to write a bleak sort of COVID isolation story. Mm. I also imagined their future. So I flash forward five years to a hopefully COVID free world. Mm. And um, it's a really sweet, touching love story and it's contemporary again. And it was so, it was so refreshing. Look, the reason, one of the big reasons why I wrote the Monuments Duology was because I wanted to take a step back from contemporary and really miss it. So that when I came back, it was with this renewed energy and that energy is in full force uh, in the Australia Reads book. And that's on sale at the end of October to promote reading. And it's only $3. So How wonderful. It's, a, it's a nice bite-sized book to get reluctant readers reading and to yeah. treat, you know, established readers as well. I'm really excited for people to read it. So what was it like writing? In, how many, so how many words is that that you that wrote is for the novella? Just, for the novella, it's just under 10,000. Okay, and so, but you're, you've written short stories and yes. and that sort of thing before. So, mm-hmm. do you have to get gear yourself into a different kind of mindset or anything? Because you don't have to do the marathon. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Is it more enjoyable, or what's the experience? How is the experience different? At no point while I was writing it was I thinking, "What am I going to do to flesh this out." It is the story at its most potent. I think it probably could have been a novel, but I was like, no, I'm just going to write these vignettes and tie them all together. And it's a nice, potent story that, you know, never overstays its welcome. Like if I could, I would write $3 novellas from now until the end of time. Like that for me, maybe 20,000 words. Mm. That for me is my happy place. It's why the sidekicks is split into three 20,000 word novellas. And, but I often find that if you, look through my work, there are very clear divisions, like especially in monuments, every 10,000 words, if you look at the 10,000 word mark, it's almost a different novel Mm, mm. to what was the previous 10,000. And that's how I keep myself, it's still building on what came before, but it's how I keep myself engaged and interested. So you did do um, a lot more journalism. Mm -hmm. Do you still do journalism and also, are you interested in pursuing other types of writing? So the first part, journalism, I'm not working as a journalist anymore, but, you know, if I can interview an author for a long-form piece, mm. I do that, and that's a lot of teaching journals. I, I do a couple a year where I interview someone or I write something for them, and I really, really enjoy that. And I think in my downtime now that I have no more deadlines ahead of me for the rest of the year, I'm reading more and I'd love to do some more interviews with authors and sort of, yeah, I find that so fascinating. And look, let's be honest, we're not talking about the arts as much as we used to. There aren't as many places for author interviews and really unpacking stories. Like if there's a feature of an author in the newspaper, it's usually this author got a huge advance. We're going to Mm. ask them three questions about how wonderful they are their book Mm. comes out next month. And we're not really talking about the text anymore. And 
it's really just a select few who get that sort of treatment. And there are so many books that I'm reading that really get paid dust when we should be celebrating them. So if I can mm-hmm. somehow, you know, amplify them and start help build a conversation around books again, I would, I think I'd really enjoy that. In terms of other writing, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, it's one of my dreams to write for the screen and mm-hmm. to write, you know, I find that dialogue comes very easily to me. So mm-hmm. that's probably what I should have been writing this whole time. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, I tried to make that pivot, you know, another part of the first third story when I had sort of, you know, writer's block, I had a pitch meeting with a TV producer and I pitched the first third and he's like, I love the premise, but there are too many Greek people in this. <laughs> and, right. yeah, you know, like just do what you always do on Australian TV, castle a Paglia in a wig <laughs> and that's the grandmother. And then like you can find some other vaguely ethnic person to be the other characters. So yes. I'm... The stories that I'd want to tell, I don't think the industry is equipped to tell them, unfortunately, Um, or at least they don't want to tell them because they're too busy telling the same stories that star Rebecca Gibney as somebody's (laughs) mum. Or Asha Ketty, don't forget. Look, Asha Asha Ketty is the somewhat distressed lady. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. But she is, she can have a laugh occasionally, but usually distressed. Um, So that's, yeah, that's, I have no interest in telling those same stories. Um, So while I would love to, that is, that is, look, that's a dream. But at the moment I get to tell stories. I get to meet the kids who read my stories. I might not have my name in lights, but you know what? I'm pretty damn happy with where I'm at now, and I don't think I'd trade it for anything else. Oh, brilliant. And on that note, what is what would your top three writing tips be for people who want to be in a position where you are one day and published author, being very happy with where they are? Okay, the first big tip is to actually read. Like mm-hmm. there is nothing worse than a debut author who comes out and says, I wrote this book because this book didn't exist. And then yeah, anyone who's been reading can name four or five books that are almost exactly the same. <laughs> so make sure you're reading and make sure that you are aware of the industry and what's being said, what's being written and engage in it, be part of the conversation. Um, and you learn so much from reading and the quality of your writing improves astronomically when you read. So please read and you're never too old to start reading. Um, next thing would be to be open to criticism. Mm. Like you are going to have to develop a very, 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 very thick skin in this industry. And it is really, really important that you take the time to, have somebody who reads your work and who tells you ways that you can improve. Cause look, I'm 31 years old. I'm not the best writer I will ever be. And I don't ever want to be the best writer I, I will ever be until I stop writing. Mm. So always be open to feedback because there are two halves to a story. There's what you think you've written and what somebody reads. Mm. And the whole point of being a good writer, it's not about being verbose. It's not about being clever. It's about, reducing the gap between what you think you've written and what people actually read. So finally, the last piece of advice I would say is 
write for joy. Write the truth and write mm. for joy. Don't write for money because you will likely be sorely disappointed. Uh, write because it lights a fire inside of you. And that is where success comes from. If you've lit a fire inside of you, the odds are, you know, you're going to light a fire inside somebody else. Mm. But if you sit there and go, I'm writing to make lots and lots of money and I'm going to write this really cynical book that mm. sort of ticks off all these checklists. Look, sometimes that works. I won't name names, but sometimes <laughs> it does work. But is it really fulfilling? Eh, who can say? Mm. <laughs> Brilliant. On that note, thank you so much for your time today, Will. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure, Valerie. Thanks for joining me this week and I hope you enjoyed this episode of So You Want to Be a Writer. If you want to connect with other listeners, just search for our Facebook group. Um, just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook. It's a really supportive community of emerging and established um, and freelance writers. It's free to join. We'd love to see you in there. Alison and I are in there regularly and some great conversation of uh, writers helping other writers. So see you in there. Uh, you can find me online at ValerieKoo.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie Koo. That's K-H-O-O. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.